Section 16 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christopher Collins. The Heirloom by T. Duthy Lyle. The Scales of Justice. Mr. Lumley, on his arrival at Vernwood, learning what had happened and seeing the consternation which prevailed, immediately assumed the direction of affairs, and there is no doubt that had Bertram Gnold had time given him, or rather if he had utilised the time which he had been given him, instead of squandering his years in sinful procrastinations and vain regrets, had Bertram Gnold actually come to the point to make any definite disposition of his affairs at all, there is no doubt that he would before any other person have appointed lawyer Lumley as executor to carry out his wishes when he was gone. But Bertram had sinfully and madly delayed the day of reckoning and arrangement, and now, like a thief in the stillness of the night, the time had passed and the opportunity was forever lost and flown. In the investigation of the mystery, Mr Lumley lost no time in calling to his aid the experience and acumen of the detective department of Great Scotland Yard, for although Jules Massey was in custody, Mr Lumley had no more belief in poor Jules' blood-guiltiness than he had in his own. Two officers from London had arrived at Vernwood, the day following that in the early morning hours of which the murder had been perpetrated. These experienced man-hunters viewed carefully the body of the deceased, previous to interment, as well as the chamber in which the tragedy was committed, and made a most minute examination of that and the adjoining rooms. They scoured in search of evidence, all the surrounding locality, both near and remote. They made particular inquiry into the habits, character, and movements of every person, likely or unlikely upon the estate, but at the end of two or more weeks after exhausting all the resources which their experience could devise, whatever they told the world, for police like doctors put on a wise face and profess not to tell all they know, whatever these two detectives told the anxiously inquisitive world, sagely and mysteriously, about suspicions or clues, they had to report to headquarters and to confess to themselves that they were as utterly destitute of any shadow of a clue to that dark mystery and as utterly powerless to point the finger of suspicion to any one individual as if they had spent those fourteen days in the bosoms of their respective families or sat on their stools and kicked their heels in their official quarters in Great Scotland Yard. Neither in the heavily carpeted chamber where the deceased had slept and died, or in the adjacent room, or on the broad flagstones of the terrace without, or on the hard-trodden gravel walk, or on the dry hard turf of the lawn, or in the sandy pulverous soil, had the murderer left trace or track or footprint behind. The dead man's escritoire and papers were apparently untouched, even his valuable ring was left upon his hand, and as far as could be discovered, not an article of value had been taken from the room, yet a murderous hand had been there, and in that short space of time had committed that tenfold atrocious deed of blood. That Jules Massey was at the spot, there or thereabout, when the murdered man died, there could be no manner of doubt, even he himself did not deny it, but what appeared in the eyes of the local world a lame assertion was that he was with the dog. Besides this thinly transparent plea, the simple-minded people in the quiet English shire were none the less disposed to excuse Jules Massey on account of the blackness of his skin. There was that prejudicial sentiment against him, that the colour of his skin must in some way reflect the blackness of his heart. They, in their narrow and simple way of thinking, had scarcely an idea that a black man, a negro-born, could be as honest and true, as innocent and manly, and as spotless in his life as if his skin were white. Then, too, Jules had set himself up so high and mighty over them all. 
Thus the finger of suspicion and scorn which pointed at Jules in his fall was cruelly malign, and had the poor fellow been judged then and there by mob law, it is to be feared that his chances of escape would have been small. In addition to the absence of all evidence that plunder could have been the object of the assassin, no personal motive could be deduced which could account for the commission of the crime. Personally, Bertram Gnault had been beloved. He had scattered his wealth about him with a lavish hand. He had ever seen that the hungry was fed. He had clothed the naked and insufficiently clad. He had housed the homeless, and had provided work on no common scale for the unemployed, and had unceasingly cared that poverty and want were things unknown in the borders of his land, and all felt that his untimely death was a calamity of which the consequences must be felt near and afar. During these gloomy days of tension and expectation, the eager excitement which the tragedy occasioned, far from exhausting itself by its own vehemence, far from exhibiting any signs of abatement, seemed to grow even more and more intense. The supposed culprit, Jules Massey, in the ordinary course of procedure, was brought up before the local magisterial bench on the charge of having committed the crime. And here all the local forensic genius in the shape of the Briggs element blossomed forth into full flower, and when at the end of the fourteen days' official investigation the two London detectives had little or no evidence to give, and went about their work in a blank-faced, crestfallen, checkmate mood, the wise assertion of Abraham Briggs was, Of course, of course they could find no clue, because there was no clue to find. That black fellow was the sole human being near the scene of the murder when the deed was done, and he and he alone committed it, or if he didn't with his own hands, he, which in the sight of the law was just as bad, was accessory to the crime. Again and again was the prisoner remanded, again and again was the protracted magisterial inquiry adjourned, till having threshed out and sifted and cogitated and blundered and silted through their magisterial brains, every jot and tittle and shred of evidence out of the materials within their reach, so completely that little or nothing more could be thought or said, this local commission of sages seemed to see no alternative before them but to commit Jules Massey before a higher, and it was to be hoped a wiser tribunal to take his further and final trial on the capital charge. During all this time, Mr Lumley, staunch and unfaltering his convictions of Jules' innocence, took care that all was done that could be done to mitigate the fearful position of the accused. He promised that nothing should be lacking which legal skill could suggest to save him from what Mr Lumley called so dire a miscarriage of justice. The local commission of the peace, the London solicitor characterised as an assembly of muddle-headed blunderbusses with uncommonly long ears. Thus, for Jules, as he was boarded and lodged as a guest of his adopted country in the local police station, the dark, weary days dragged heavily on, the darkest, the very darkest of poor Jules Massey's life. It was the time of reaction after the long years which he had been enjoying of comparative affluence, of importance and exalted and trusted position and ease. It was for Jules the swing of the pendulum of life, from which we are none of us exempt, of which the tune is, now we're up and now we're down, now we suffer, now enjoy. Very shortly, Mr Lumley secured for his defence at the approaching assizes at which he was to take his trial, the services of Mr Wilbraham, a young barrister whose brilliant parts and sound knowledge of criminal law were mounting him round by round of the steep and laborious ascent to the summit of the ladder of legal emolument and fame. With regard to the Vernwood property, there were other considerations too, which were pressing heavily on Mr Lumley's thoughts and exercising his legal mind, for the Vernwood estate was now in the position of being unowned, without head, without ownership and without heir, and the interests at stake were complicated, needing judicious administration, and were large. 
and so in due course Mr Lumley instituted proceedings which were legally judicious and convenient, and in his own interests not unwise. He caused legal proceedings to be taken in a way that lawyers know exactly how best to bring about, by which the Vernwood estate came under the direction and management of the High Court of Chancery, by which High Court the highly respectable firm of Wyndham and Lumley were appointed stewards, pending the discovery of, if any such thing existed, an heir. Meanwhile, Jules Massey, as he languished in Durin's vial, was, day by day, approaching nearer, and terribly near, the crisis of his perhaps terrible fate, for there can be few other forms of death more terrible than the death upon the gallows, by the common hangman's hand, for a crime which he never committed, of a true, faithful, honest, upright, honest-hearted man. However, it is one of the just causes of congratulation, and one of the boasts of the British Constitution, that the hand of its justice should be so judiciously tempered with mercy, the liberty of the subject should be so jealously and scrupulously as it is hedged and fenced in, and the hastiness of its judgments so well and wisely restrained. But at length the time of the assizes of which Jules Massey was to take his trial on the charge of murdering Bertram Gnault came round. There was the arrival of Her Majesty's judges, invested as usual with all the dignity and importance of the representatives of imperial power, and all the pomp and circumstance which surrounds the representatives of royalty and the majesty of the law. The fact that twelve gentlemen are elected before whom a British subject must have the evidence of his sin adjudged even after he has been accused, and before he takes his final trial, is one of those safeguards which doth hedge and fence the life and liberty of the subject in, and before twelve such gentlemen at the opening of the Assizes had the case of Jules Massey on the charge of the murder of Bertram Gnault to come. By that august personage the judge, after having been duly empanelled, were these twelve gentlemen of the grand jury charged. In the case of the coloured man, Jules Massey, committed on a charge of the willful murder of his master, Bertram Gnault, said his lordship, the magistrates have committed the prisoner to take his trial on the capital charge, but they had done so on evidence which to his, his lordship's, mind seemed not to be altogether satisfactory or complete. He, his lordship continued, never thought there was anything gained by the ordeal which a trial for murder involved, unless there appeared a reasonable prospect of arriving at a verdict against the accused, for an ordeal surely such a trial was, it was an ordeal solemn and painful for all concerned. But he should leave it to the intelligence of the grand jury to say whether sufficiently conclusive evidence had been adduced to warrant the committal of the prisoner to take his trial before the petty jury on the charge, and whether in their unanimous opinion there was a prima facie case. Thus shortly were the grand jury charged. After his lordship's charge, the twelve grand jurymen, under the chairmanship of a gentleman of common sense, retired to do their duty as best they might to their country, and whether black or white, to their fellow men. The result of their duty, as far as we are concerned, was that in Jules Massey's case they failed to find a true bill against the prisoner, and the said Jules Massey walked forth from prison before the world in the light of the day an honest, an innocent, and a free man. At this finding of the grand jury, among the believers in Jules Massey's innocence of the charge preferred against him which faction was headed by Mr Lumley, there was of course jubilation in a high degree, while Abraham Briggs sank proportionately low, he sank never to lift his head or show his pleasant face again on the magisterial bench, and to this very day, local tradition jocosely asserts that after the Vernwood murder, Abraham Briggs, in his attention to his magisterial functions, was not even lukewarm, and that he spent the leisure hours of his declining years in the cultivation of an improved kind of marrow-fat peas. The tidings of Jules Massey's acquittal reached Vernwood with that marvellous rapidity which, in their respective mysterious ways, human tongues and electric wires can transmit news. 
If the excitement and tension had been great before the trial, it now became, if possible, more intense. If Jules Massey was innocent, then who was guilty? Did assassination stalk among the people with unfettered hand? If Jules Massey did not murder his master, then who did? Such with strained eager face were the questions each one asked. End of section 16